0: Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. We've been friends for almost 20 years, and we decided it was finally time to start a podcast. Over the
1: years, we've gone our different ways, but we're coming back to the one thing that we bonded over in the first
2: place. We read Lord of the Rings way back in middle school, and now we're going to do it again. Yeah, and even though we love them, these books are a slog, so here's our plan. Uh, We're going to read each book chapter by chapter, and then when we finish one of the books, we're going to watch the corresponding movie.
0: This material isn't new to us, so there are going to be spoilers for the entire trilogy in every episode. If it's new to you, you shall not pass. Just kidding. But do proceed with caution. Let's start at the beginning. How we became friends and how we fell in love with Lord of the Rings.
1: So uh, rewind like 20 years back to middle school, and um, I just moved uh, cities and schools. And I met you guys when I joined a new school. And, um, when I, when I joined your group of friends, you know, everyone was pretty much already obsessed with Lord of the Rings. I think it was right around the time the movies came out and, um, you were all really into it, uh, into the characters, into the fan fiction and things like that. And I, I Honestly, first, just rejected it wholeheartedly. I was like, I don't want to be involved in this. Um, It seems like too much effort to catch up. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, Eventually, that got kind of old because it wasn't a thing that went away. Um, You guys stayed obsessed with it, so I eventually decided to check out what was going on and I was kind of an elitist about how to be a fan of something and I felt like I had to read the books before I watched the movies um, because I always just felt like books are better than movies and so I read the books uh, I think in sixth grade I made the slog through them I had read The Hobbit like many years before but didn't even realize it was connected And um, then I eventually watched the movies and pretty much seamlessly entered the obsession that you already had.
0: Which is hilarious because my memory of things is really different. Um, Not only did I not like The Lord of the Rings, uh, I didn't like you very much when you first came to our school. Uh, We had kind of this weird nemesis relationship that... Neither of us are entirely sure how that started, but it definitely existed for several years. Um, And my memory of the way that this worked was you came to our school and you got into Lord of the Rings. And it was this thing that you had in common with people who I thought of as being my friends. Uh, And so I kind of got into Lord of the Rings out of spite because I didn't like the idea that there was something that brought you closer to people that I was friends with and that kind of pushed me out of the group. So very begrudgingly, I decided that I was going to go back and essentially make myself like the books and like the movies so that it wasn't a thing that you had in common with all of our mutual friends and that I didn't.
1: We should probably mention that we're no longer nemesis. Yes,
0: <laughs> we're, we're correct. We're friends now. <laughs> we are friends now, um, and we're not entirely sure how that happened either, but it did happen.
2: Yeah, and I am new to almost all of this backstory. I did not know that that was going on at the time. Um, I got into reading Lord of the Rings because you know I like to read, and uh, also because it yeah. was <laughs> it was a big deal in my family. Um, my dad uh, got really into Lord of the Rings when he was a teenager. Uh, my dad actually speaks Elvish, um, and uh, so it was something that he and my mom brought into our house when I was really young. Um, I don't remember when it was that I first read the books, but it was definitely after I watched the movies. Uh, the movies really hooked me, um, and and uh, after that, I got into the text.
1: So. Just for some context, we're recording this podcast while we're in lockdown due to COVID-19. And because of that lockdown, we've actually been finding ourselves talking more and more. Um, We've always been friends, but we've really reconnected recently. And one of the topics we always come back to is our love for this series. You know, it's one of the first things that really formed the bond between us, and we've all, you know, gone to different schools, had different jobs, gone pretty much our separate ways since then, but this one thing has really kept us bonded, and so um, why not talk about it? Um, So with that in mind, let's dive into episode one, where we're going to be discussing the prologue from The Fellowship of the Ring*.
0: All right, so where we begin? Concerning hobbits.
1: (laughs) The prologue. The prologue. Uh, I'm going to admit something, you guys. I've read these books a lot of times, and I don't think I've ever read the prologue until now.
2: Neither have I. And I was really surprised because um, I think for, like, the first couple pages of the prologue, you sort of feel like you're reading, like, bonus content. Um, Like, you're reading some kind of exposition or context that, like, you really could afford to skip. And I was really surprised because then later... Um, you start getting these mentions of Bilbo, and then you get mentions in the in the section about pipeweed um, about Mary because Mary apparently wrote a book on pipeweed later in his life, um, and then abruptly, uh, like close to the end of the prologue, it rapidly ramps up and starts talking about how, um, like the Shire was ordered in a certain way. And there were, you know, there were sheriffs and there were mailmen and police. And then it says, by the way, um, like the, like the number of, of like the Shire equivalent of state troopers began to ramp up, um, like 60 years after Bilbo came back from his, from his big journey. And then it like, like, there was this moment in it when I abruptly realized, like, oh, I'm not reading, like, bonus content or context. Like, this is actually part of the story, um, which I never realized before.
1: Okay, so for those of you who aren't reading along with us, this the prologue is called, well, at least part one of the prologue is called Concerning Hobbits, and it's essentially just a history of this race called the Hobbits, what they look like, where they live, how they got to where they live, how many different clans there are, uh, it's, it's split into four parts. So The second part is concerning pipe weed. So we just get a brief history of the, the weed they smoke, basically. Uh, <laughs> and then the third part is on the ordering of the Shire, which is uh, focused essentially on the area that they live in, um, the people that oversee that area, the types of um, you know, positions they have, like mayors and sheriffs and things like that. And then the last, the fourth part is, I would say, probably the most important part to the story, which is that synopsis of what happens in The Hobbit, which is where Bilbo goes on this journey with Gandalf, and he finds the ring, um, and he finds Gollum, the creature guarding the ring, and he essentially tricks him into basically letting him escape. So what did you guys think of this discussion of the Hobbits as a race, and basically this, like, peaceful and idyllic world that they live in.
2: I mean, this is my impression that the Shire is protected by, uh, governing bodies that are like completely outside of it, um, from anything bad that could come in, uh, and, and infringe on their peace, right? Like there's, there's civilizations that operate kind of to the, to the East and the South of the Shire roughly, um, that that serve the function that normally like having their own having their own like uh like security forces would serve.
0: I didn't get that impression. I think that was sort of how it was set up, but that after the fall of the kingdom that it was pretty self contained.
1: Yeah, and even if I guess like even if they were protected from outside enemies coming in and attacking, like it doesn't really explain why there was no internal conflict. And the only explanation he really gives for that is because they're just inherently a chill race, which seems kind of strange.
2: Yeah. One thing he mentions that uh, like in particular is that hobbits don't have greed. And then like what he follows that up with was, uh, and, you know, as a consequence of them not being greedy people, uh, nothing ever changed there. Almost like Tolkien thinks that the engine of, of change in human society is avarice.
1: I bet you Tolkien thinks exactly that.
0: <laughs> but he contradicts himself, or he will, uh, in, like, a chapter. Because the whole, like...
1: So oh, the whole, like, Sackville Baggins thing?
0: Yeah. I mean there's a whole like tiny little plot line about how some of Bilbo's relatives are definitely just trying to cozy up to him for the inheritance money. So to say like there's no greed, there's no sort of avarice or like aggression even is really interesting because that in and of itself feels a bit like an idealistic view of the hobbits as we get to know them in the books.
1: I wonder if, like, okay, this, this, I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Um, So, one of the things I'm most excited to cover about the books because it wasn't in the movies is The Scouring of the Shire, Um, which makes it clear that hobbits, like, are corruptible, right? They can be corruptible manipulated and convinced by, in this case, Saruman. Um, I wonder if, like, Tolkien just thinks that, like, if you put a set of people who are all the same in one place and just leave them alone, like, nothing will ever happen.
2: Yeah, this is, like, the white supremacist theory of why, like, Sweden and Norway are doing better than us.
1: (laughs) I don't know if it's, like, well, I mean, I'm thinking... I'm thinking about it from the the lens of like him fighting in these wars, right? Like where he
0: he basically yeah, the idealization of the English countryside, right? Yeah, right, right. And like
1: I don't know if he's thinking of it necessarily from a white supremacist angle so much as a like nationalistic angle. Um but there's it's definitely tied with that a little bit.
2: Right, but like like, like the idea like you're saying is that if people are if people are the same if they share some if they if they share enough of the same cultural values there won't be any conflict you know sufficient to create um, sufficient to create major social problems but what's funny though is that like he mentions uh, he mentions like economic inequality in the Shire. Um, in the part where he talks about the different kinds of houses that hobbits have, um, he mentions, and I thought this was interesting trivia that not all hobbits live in holes. And I guess I'd forgotten that that was true, that like Bilbo's, Bilbo's house bag end, which you see in the movie and is like a beautiful sprawling underground home, um, is like not actually the norm. And that, uh, most hobbits live in above ground houses just because there's not really enough real estate for everyone to have a hole. Um, so the people that live in, or the hobbits that live in holes are rich hobbits like Bilbo and very poor hobbits,
1: which is which is such a like. I mean, it's such a parallel to like the idea of single-family units versus like you know, multifamily homes and units where it's like only the really poor and the really rich have these holes
2: right? Totally. I like, that's funny that you say single family homes and multifamily homes. I was thinking like, it's like, like analogous to having like a, like an inner city apartment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what I mean. Where like, you know, when we traditionally think of people having a house, we, we do think of it as like a single family standalone home, even though uh, like a lot of people
2: are not living in that situation. Right, 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 exactly. Like the like like when you think of like a place that people live, like you typically think of a house even though like houses are um not maybe the exception at this point, at least in the in the US. Uh, certainly in cities, certainly in in urban areas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess like what I'm coming around to is that like the Shire is described as being like a pretty nice place. But once you consider the fact that you have hobbits that are so poor that they're living in like really shabby holes, like described almost like they're like they're gophers. um, I guess maybe there are a lot of problems in the Shire and it's there's just certain aspects of it that are better than other places.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that really struck me thinking about like, oh, but there won't be any change or there's sort of this preservation of a way of life if everybody is all the same, is that the change that he does describe is this increasing sense of we have to be really insular, we have to keep outsiders out, right? That he talks about that a couple of times, that they're increasingly wary of outsiders, that they're increasingly sort of policing their borders, essentially, to keep people who are not like them out of their community which i think hits hard right now but it
1: was interesting to see that in the lens of like them kind of mistrusting the elves because i think from especially from the movies and even i think from the rest of the books we get the impression that the elves are kind of like the pinnacle of what a race can be in this world um and like it's it's interesting to see this kind of, like, oh, like, they actually aren't liked by everyone. And there's, you know, the hobbits really go from respecting them and wanting to learn from them to, like, completely mistrusting them.
0: Which, again, is really interesting in the context of it, pretty much throughout the rest of the books, the elves are portrayed as the the best of the races in terms of their moral quality. Yeah. Which is I, I always think that's so weird that they're
1: that they're portrayed that way because they basically run away. <laughs> like
0: the yes, there yeah, are some elf who problem solving fight. is not ideal.
1: Yeah. Like the majority of the elven race, like their solution to this problem is just like, oh, I give up on Middle earth. Bye. Um <laughs> and, and that does not seem like a very ideal way to approach any problem and it definitely doesn't seem like something that Tolkien would have respected so it's interesting that he portrays them as like this amazing uh I feel weird saying race so many times (laughs) like because
0: amazing group of
1: also I didn't want to say amazing race because that's something (laughs) completely different
0: (laughs) The single best episode of The Amazing Race. (laughs) It's just
1: elves in all the contests being really good at everything.
2: (laughs) Shortly after getting into Lord of the Rings and then getting big into fantasy in general, I began uh, really worshipping the idea of Europeans. Um, I just, I like this, I like this idea of like a smarter and better civilization.
1: (laughs) Wanda, I'm so gonna edit this out. (laughs) This sounds so bad.
0: Does it sound bad? Okay. Like, is there... <laughs> well, but I mean, I I think it's valid, right? There's this sense of like, oh, Americans are like uncouth and uncultured. And it's because we're sort of younger as a, a country and as a culture, like, or as a sort of cultural blend and... There is that perception. I think a lot of people go through a point where they're like, oh, well, everything is just better in Europe, right? And it's not sort of because of the whiteness. Because I think you can look at people who would say, oh, well, you know, I didn't have a European phase. I had like a Japan phase, right? But like this sense of admiring a place that is much older. And suppo- like, we think of it as being more refined by virtue of its age. Yeah, and I should clarify, like, I, I mean, I... But also, please don't say that you just, like, you really fell in love with the Europeans, because that is. Just... <laughs> I think the part I'm going to edit out is when you said you worshipped the <laughs> Europeans.
2: All right, all right. If I can try and, like, like live, like, redo that statement, I'd say that, like after, after reading Lord of the Rings, I fixated on, um, this idea that, you know, somewhere outside of the United States, which I thought of as so tacky and and uncouth, um, there was a place that was, that was smarter and had, you know, more refined, uh, practices and lore. And, uh, because I was white and had very little exposure to, to like, Non-white civilizations. Yeah, I I like fixated on Europe. Um, am I am I proud of that? Like looking back on it, absolutely not. Um, but I, I think that that was a phase that I think a lot of people our age went through when we were when we were like around ten, maybe we like becoming teenagers was like this phase of saying like, oh my god, like George Bush, like screw George Bush. I just want to go live in Norway.
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't, I honestly don't think it has anything to do with you being white because we both had those phases too. Like, I went through and possibly still going through a huge Anglophilia phase where I was just obsessed with anything like about British history, written by British authors, British TV, everything. Like, I just thought it was better for some reason. And Ishani as we all know, (laughs) the Japan thing was definitely referring to yourself.
0: (laughs) Yes, correct.
1: Um, So I like, yeah, that's totally fair. And I think I don't, I actually, I never thought of it coming from Lord of the Rings in that way, because I, I always saw Lord of the Rings as British literature that I just liked already. Okay, so that's kind of a lot about the hobbits as a race. So let's talk a little bit about pipeweed. Point of order.
0: We, and I don't know if this is true for you guys, but I had been laboring under this understanding that pipeweed is weed, right? I was sort of picturing for years and years and years that the hobbits are just like charmingly high AF the entire time. He straight up says... That it's tobacco, it's nicotine, which it's means nicotine. He
1: he's he specifically mentions a variety, probably of nicotiana, and it's uh, not difficult to imagine what that might be.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not even imagine it. It's like that's actually what it's called, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I always thought it was weed too, and I think part of that is because of how the movies portray it, um, right? Because you get some scenes of Marion Pippin like smoking this weed and like being what. Looks a lot like high, so
0: yeah, uh, although it yeah. is really funny in the context of it being nicotine, which is a stimulant that like the hobbits are a constantly wired and be like should never be hungry because a stimulant like stimulants are appetite suppressants. so it actually makes way more sense to think of it as real
1: weed because the hobbits are like super chill and laid back and eat a ton,
0: yeah. Right. But either way, also, the entire chapter or section on pipeweed, I was just like, stop glorifying substance use, Tolkien. <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. Like, none of this bullshit about it being an art form. Y- you know what? Tolkien is a veteran, and I think we need to respect him a little bit more on this podcast.
2: <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, it, uh, we're not, we're not, you know, not considering the possibility that. A, a nicotine-like substance just has a completely different effect on hobbits, um, because you guys have prevented, or presented pretty solid evidence that, uh, if it really, if it really was like smoking cigarettes for hobbits, uh, they wouldn't be eating six meals a day, um, they would probably l- look a lot hotter, um.
0: Wanda, don't glorify substance use! <laughs> Think of the children! who probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast
1: oh yeah we should uh maybe put a not safe for children warning at the beginning of this it's a pg-13 podcast too so part two is pretty short um and it leads us into part three which actually contains one of my favorite sections that we read um which i had totally forgotten about which is this idea of uh what they call mathems and It's basically, like, things that you don't have any use for, but you don't want to get rid of.
2: I love this, too. I love this.
1: One of the things I've been doing while being stuck at home is, like, trying to Marie Kondo my house and, like, get rid of things that I don't need. And this just, like, hit me for some reason where I was just like, there are so many things that are so hard to get rid of because I have no use for them, but I I can't throw them away and I can't donate them because it just, like, means something for some reason.
0: My moment of relatability was when the hobbits were described as eating six meals a day and I was like, well, that's relatable. (laughs) also a coronavirus factor. right the big covid-19 mood right there navia what's
2: uh what's an example of something in your house that you don't use anymore but you can't give away
1: um so i have like a ton of old t-shirts just from like various activities that i've attended concerts that i've been to whatever it is and there are at least like 30 of them that i do not wear anymore and they pretty much just, like, sit in storage in my house, but I can't bring myself to get rid of them because they feel like just, like, mementos of that thing that they came from. Um,
2: I love the idea of there being, like, a public place to put that stuff.
1: I, I love that idea. Like, first of all, I love the fact that there's a word for it, which is um, I I'm going to use that and no one will know what it means, (laughs) but but I love that. And then I love the idea of just like this, this museum where they can all just go put this stuff and it, you know, there's no use for it, but you can, I guess, go look at all the stuff that meant things to other people.
2: Yeah. Or if you're Bilbo, you can just, uh, you can just clout drop, uh, an elven sword into the math house and say, yeah, I I don't have to use this anymore. (laughs) Um, I actually had like a like a, I, I was really into this idea of the matham house for like a totally different reason. Um, uh, which is that uh when he describes um w- when the narrator uh describes the the mathams as uh anything that you have no immediate use for but you're unwilling to throw away. Uh that made me like stop and think a couple times because I thought like, you know, how different is that from the kind of things that the that we uh we humans put in museums and my conclusion is that it's not that different at all, um, and that it's actually that's actually like an incredibly good description of things that we think of as like things of antiquity. Um, like the moment that something stops being like a, an object of the now and becomes like an object of the past is when it has like completely lost its utility. Um, but we're still like we want to keep that for some reason. That's a really
1: good point, and you know we think of museums as like storing our history essentially and we like go back and look at the items in there to understand in a historical context like why they were used or when they were used and i imagine that this mathem house that they have would serve the same purpose eventually and it essentially does right because these are weapons that they don't use anymore but they can like go look at them and be like oh at one time we had to be somewhat warlike and protect ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of what's going on right now, so not only is it lockdown, but we're also on, I think, week two or three of uh, a wave of Black Lives Matter protests. Um, And in that context, it's really interesting to think about the things that become part of the historical record are things that we might think of as our mathem items right that it's t-shirts and face masks and signs made out of cardboard that were like sitting there going okay well now I need to recycle this but that's part of history 50 years from now that's going to be the kind of thing that we would see in a museum
1: yeah it's really it's really kind of interesting to think about like our mathems being our history like for the people who come after us it and also makes you think, like, you know, when we look at historical items in a museum, are those actually the things that people used or just the things that, like, had value to them for emotional reasons?
2: Yeah. I remember I went to I went to a museum called the Museum of Innocence when I was in Istanbul. Um, listeners, if you happen to go to Istanbul, do not miss this place. It's, um, it's a museum that's based on a novel, um, I think with the same title. Um, and it's about a man who makes a museum and in the museum goes, uh, everything that, that the love of his life, uh, ever touched, um, as many things as he can collect. And so basically what they did was they, they built an actual museum in Istanbul, um, based off this concept and they, and, and they curate all of the things that someone who was born at a certain time might touch over the course of her life. So you get things like a family photo, um, a newspaper, um an orange peel um and a bunch of assorted other things but they're displayed in these like beautiful cases
0: that's a really fascinating idea to think about what would be in your your museum
1: and you know the weird part is to think about it like from our context a lot of our history lives online like we don't need to store physical items to represent like the things that happened to us because we just have photos on Social media that like anyone
2: can go scroll through and figure out what the heck happened to us. This is this is an unrefined idea that I, I I probably need to workshop a little bit more and shouldn't just be throwing out there in the podcast. But it seems like it seems like Tolkien is fascinated with history, um, and he's really really interested in like the past and the deep past. And I and I say that partially because he projects that interest onto his onto some of the hobbits, um, at the end of the prologue, when he talks about, um, Mary and Pippin and Sam and Frodo, um, all later in their lives, um, getting really into like deep, deep history. Um, but he also like, there's, there's just like a lot of like, you know, beyond that, there's just like a lot of like little pieces of evidence in the prologue that, um, that, that Tolkien finds, finds the past to be a really interesting thing. Um, and is almost, constructing by writing lord of the rings he is it, it's almost like he's he's enjoying the process of writing a history book um out of like out of a material that he's like he's he's invented himself so he's not doing the typical thing that you do if you write a history book you have to you have to select Things you have to select what parts of history you want to tell, right um and that's something that my history professors in college tried to get me to understand to, to no avail for a long time, but that history books are not everything that happened, it's some things that happened um curated by the person that wrote it and and Tolkien seems to be like in the prologue and in the books at large he's sort of imitating that, and he's sometimes imitating it in a way that's sort of funny
0: well and i I think you raise a really good point there. And I think my sort of expansion on this raw idea is that to me what really struck me about coming back to the books was a lot of our discussions prior to starting this podcast were about how excellent all of the behind the scenes content for the movies is. And so to me, it's really interesting that you're talking about how Tolkien is essentially curating the books as as though they are history, because then in an expansion of that, it feels like in making the movies, the production crew curated their own history, the history of making the films, all of the work that went into it, all of the shenanigans that happened behind the scenes as their own way of sort of paying tribute to the work that Tolkien was doing in putting together all these appendices and the footnotes and all this random trivia that he's collected and appended to these stories is now something that we're seeing in an entirely different medium in the movies. And it's something that we all really love in the movies. I mean, there still isn't any film or film series with behind-the-scenes content that is as good as The Lord of the Rings, and that's an opinion that I'm going to stand by. So I don't know that it was necessarily an intentional parallel, but in hearing you talk about how Tolkien did this active curation in the process of writing, I think it's really interesting that it encouraged people who love the books to do some curation of their own, and in a way, it's kind of what we're doing. With this podcast.
2: I think that's a great parallel to draw. You know, if for no other reason than it highlights a clever marketing play by the people that produce Lord of the Rings movies, you know, Uh, like you know that people who like these books are people who can love not just a story, but a whole world. So if you produce a whole world of content, there's going to be an audience for that. I think all of us, when we were kids, were sucked into the world of the movies just as much as the world of the books.
1: Yeah. And, I think also one of the interesting things is getting to the last part part 4 of this um this section is the way that Tolkien writes plot is so different from the way that he writes the this history that he's creating where he's obviously so into like describing this the history of the hobbits and how they got here and what they are and then when it gets to like section 4 in which he basically gives a synopsis of the plot of the book the hobbit Um, and it's the first time we encounter like real plot happening and it's like so to the point rapid fire he's like then this happened then this happened then this happened he's like you know Bilbo went to with the dwarves and he found this thing and then he went in Gollum's cave and then he tricked Gollum and he found the ring and then he escaped and it's he does not spend any time elaborating on like setting the scene or anything like that and Yes, it's a recap, but from what I remember of these books, like that's kind of consistent with how he writes plot in general is he just doesn't dedicate a lot of time to the whole show don't tell idea of, of writing uh, fiction. He's, he's pretty much just like, these are all the things that happen. And I will save my elaborate descriptions for when I'm talking about like the history of a place or the history of a race.
0: Having read ahead a little bit, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that point, but I also feel like that's a discussion for next time.
1: Yeah, I think it always just strikes me. And yeah, you know, that's fair because I'm remembering that the first chapter is about this birthday party that he describes in, in decent detail. But I think what I'm remembering is just like, there are some chapters later on in the book that I remember being really drawn out scenes in the movies. And the chapter is like super short like some of the battles are some of the longest parts of the movies and it's like here's like seven pages on this battle
0: yeah definitely with the action scenes i totally agree with you well yeah and i mean like you know additionally
2: i agree with you navia like tolkien is not writing in a way that makes you see what the characters see or hear what they hear or think what they think um and i think despite that it's it's so enjoyable to read which is really interesting You know, we're used to to books. I think giving us a lot of information about what's going through, you know, a character's mind and putting us in their shoes, and you know, books that really try to make you feel present um, and give you as much of a stake as possible in what's going to happen next by making you feel like you're, you know, you're right there um, in the scene. This is so different. You're aware that this is a story that that not only has an end, but even within the world of the book, it ended thousands of years ago. Um, the story is like way already over, even within the literature. And um, you're also aware that there's a narrator um, in the book who's not really a character in the story, but you're still receiving the story through them secondhand. Like compared to the, the literature I'm used to reading, I don't feel present with the characters in this book. There's always this, this layer between me and them.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I actually kind of want to keep an eye on that as we keep reading on, like, if we ever get any insight into, like, what any of the characters are thinking the way we typically do in other books, and that kind of just really lends itself back to the idea that this is a history and not a fiction, where he's just like, these are the events as we remember them happening, and we have no insight into what anyone was thinking.
2: I honestly love it. It made me think so much about what it means to be immersed in a story or to like relate to a character. And I love the way that at the end of the prologue, Tolkien manages to shift from writing uh, a description of history into a narrative. Um, I'm amazed that a writer can do that. It's it's like bending space-time. Okay, well, maybe not really, but like it's sort of like that.
0: Well, and I, I feel like that's a good point at which to ask the big question of... How do you think that this prologue functions as a prologue to the rest of the trilogy? because it it certainly sounds like, Wanda, you enjoyed it more than on previous attempts, perhaps is a good word? Yeah, I
1: I'm gonna kind of stand by my original take on this prologue, which is that, like, it was certainly more interesting to read. Uh, as an adult than I may have found it as a child. But I still just don't feel like it belongs here in the book. It doesn't give me any information that I need going into the story. Um, And it just kind of
0: feels like it could have been an appendix. I think I kind of second that. And the thing that I took away from the prologue was having read the other The rest of the book and the rest of the trilogy, a lot of the stuff in the prologue didn't feel like it was necessarily reflective of things that I knew were going to happen later on. That some of the generalizations Tolkien made, some of the ways he described things felt, if not sort of sufficiently nuanced and occasionally outright contradictory to the way characters or events are going to happen later on. And so while I think I had an easier time just physically reading it as an adult, I still don't know that I enjoy it all that much as a prologue. I don't know that it serves its purpose the way I would want it to, right? And of course, with that caveat of it's my opinion, but I don't know that it felt like a good starting point to bring people into this world.
2: I totally disagree. I think that both of you are missing the point. Um, The information in the prologue is maybe not all relevant to the story, but it's relevant to the world in which the story is taking place. I think what the prologue is supposed to get you accustomed to is the fact that there's more more to this fantasy than the story itself about Frodo and the Fellowship. And if you choose to not read this part, you're choosing to opt out of part of the art. Um, I think that, that makes it important that, uh, that it goes in a prologue, right? Because, you know, it's, if it was in an appendix, then the reader wouldn't have this, wouldn't have to make this conscious choice of, I'm going to skip this. I'm going to skip over, I'm going to skip over part of the literature.
1: Can I ask kind of like a tangentially related question? When, when you guys read books, do you read the foreword before you read the book?
2: Wait, prologues or forewords?
1: I guess I'm thinking of forewords, but let's, uh, yeah, let me ask, I'll open that question to prologues too. Like, do you start at chapter one or do you read the things that lead up to it?
0: I will read prologues. I will read if they've included some poetry or lines of sort of non-prose text. I will read all of that before I start a book. And I think that's why I don't care for the prologue as much as you do, Wanda, is I don't think that it doesn't have a function. I just don't think that it improves the reading experience. Really? You don't think so? It's not, oh, it's total useless garbage. But I also think that as a reader, I would rather get that information by starting at chapter one. And I think I would have had an easier reading experience starting at chapter one And I think there's still ways to see that sense of this is a history that doesn't take 30 pages and makes it really inaccessible.
1: I feel like we were talking a while ago about who we were as students. And I feel like this is very exemplary of like, our patients as people (laughs) relative to each other. I mean, Ashani, if if I had to guess if you were the kind of person that read things that came before chapter one, I 100% would have thought that you did just because, like, that's who you are.
0: That's the brand. Yeah,
1: you're very intentional and, like, you pay attention to detail. I, like, I... If I see anything before chapter one, like I flip those pages immediately. I don't even remember the last time I read a foreword or a prologue until, I guess, this, this is the first
2: time in a while. <laughs> I read the prologue to books, or the introduction, whatever it's called. I never read the foreword. That's strange behavior. The foreword assumes that I care what was going on in the author's life when they wrote the book. I don't want that when I start reading. But going back to what Ashani was saying... I'd like to know what these better, more exciting ways are of writing a prologue that still gives you the feeling that you've entered not just a story, but a world of historical material with a lot of different layers. It's not boring. I mean, actually, it is boring, but that's part of the point. Reading history is boring.
0: I expected it to be boring, and it was boring. Okay, so I'm just
1: Googling, like, what prologue is versus introduction. Um, Prologue is described as a separate introductory section of a literary or musical work, Um, and then some of the sub-definitions are an event or action that leads to another event or situation.
0: Yeah, like I think of a prologue as a framing device potentially. Like if you wanted to do sort of set this up as a history, you could use a similar framing device to the one Tolkien introduces, which is let me relate to you a little bit about the people that you are going to encounter in this book, right? People meaning the hobbits generally. And I think you could do that in a way that is also more interesting to read, frankly. Yeah, I'm, I'm
1: just thinking of some, like, other fantasy series that I've read and the prologues that come before them, and almost always what it actually is is, like, a brief scene that takes place that you have no context for yet, but, like, you just see some characters interact in some way, and then... You kind of go into the book, which starts at a completely separate scene and a completely separate time. And then you learn as you go, like what the relevance of that initial scene was.
0: Right. And I think you could have you could hew closely to Tolkien's ideas and Tolkien's intent in this particular prologue and still have it be more engaging than what it is. Right. And I think that's where my problem with it as a prologue comes is not the idea or the intent of it, but the fact that it's so hard to get through for a lot of people that a lot of people who sit down to read this book aren't going to be able to get past it. And that to me is a shame because there's some really wonderful stuff in the rest of the trilogy. Right. There's really great characters and there's really great stories and there's really great ideas that people are going to not get to experience because the prologue is not an invitation, it's a barrier. No way. Um, Come on.
2: If it was that much of a barrier, these wouldn't be some of the most famous books of the 20th century. Like people are adults. If you don't want to read the prologue, then you can skip it. And when I was in middle school reading this for the first time, I did. But I wish I hadn't, and I'm really glad we didn't skip it this time, because the point of this prologue is not that it engages you, it's that, that you engage with it rather than skipping something that the author thought was important. And that increases your investment in what's, what, in what's going to come later.
1: I, I think it all just comes back to that idea of like Tolkien wrote these books intending them to be a history, and we read them wanting them to be fantasy. I feel like the takeaway here is that we are huge fans of this series, but that doesn't mean that we're necessarily fans of every single part of this series. And that's what makes it fun to talk about. I mean, I think some of our listeners are going to be reading along with us and really immersed in this lore and getting really excited with us about the things they're finding out. And then some of our listeners are going to be like, I just cannot drag myself through this book. And that's fine because... You can just listen to us do it instead.
0: So with that said, thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. If you want to help support the show, you can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Special thanks to Andrew, Nishant, and Ursula, and to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey.
1: Where once was life
2: the
0: (laughs) the darkness darkness falls
2: falls. (laughs) Where once was love
0: love is no more